What do you think of when you hear that word, Reformation? For some of you, an image might come to mind of a couple pieces of paper nailed to a church in Germany somewhere, those 95 theses that kind of got the ball moving on this whole thing. Others of you might think of the prevailing church of the early 1500s, one which had strayed shockingly far from the words of Scripture, a church whose leaders said that their decrees and their traditions were on an even level, if not even higher than the teaching of Scripture itself and of God's own mouth. A church which was selling little pieces of paper called indulgences, which would let you swap money in exchange for God's forgiveness. Maybe maybe you think of, as many probably do, this guy right here. Martin Luther, that German monk who nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, a man who who sought to reform the mess that the church around him had become, thus ultimately earning the name for that era, the Reformation. But how would you react today if I told you that reform wasn't and isn't the answer. Because that, you see, is actually, and was, the the central message of the Reformation. The Church of Luther's day was teaching people that if if they reformed their ways, if they performed enough good deeds and paid enough penance, if they perhaps sought even a higher existence as a monk or a nun or a priest who devoted their entire being to the church, well, then God would be pleased with their changes in life, with their reformed attitudes and actions, and he would then welcome them into heaven. But Martin Luther realized something as he was studying the scripture while serving as a professor of theology at Wittenberg University. He came to understand from scripture that the answer to mankind's spiritual problems is not found in the reform of the person. It is found, rather, in death and rebirth. So we're going to read here today from Colossians 2, where we find this message, the the message of Luther, the message of the Reformation, starting at verse 6. We'll just read all the verses at once right now. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, Luther was not inventing some sort of new message or new teaching as his opponents claimed, nor was he seeking what so many might seek for themselves today. He wasn't looking for fame. He wasn't looking for recognition in this as some great innovator. And yet, that's what he was often accused of, right? Luther's message, though, is really the same one that we find here in Colossians 2, the same one that Jesus taught to Nicodemus, which we read earlier in John 3 in our gospel lesson. The gospel's purpose is not to reform or uh, change the person born of the flesh, that is, the person dead in their sinful nature, into a better, kinder, uh, more self-controlled version of him or herself. In fact, any attempt to reform that sinful flesh in order to reform that old self is really spoken of time and again in Scripture as being utter futility. Romans 8 tells us the mind of sinful man is death. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And yet, it's the great and continued error of humankind to believe that that, that somehow we can do certain things in order to enlighten ourselves, in order to bring ourselves salvation, in order to save us from the mess that we ourselves not only have created in the past with our sin, but continue to create every single day in our sin. It's that that kind of mindset that that we very easily slip into, a mindset that says things like, well, if I can just break that one big addiction in my life, that's when I'll finally be worth something to God. Or if I can work really hard to become a, a, a better spouse, a better parent, stop thinking of myself so much and start thinking of them more. That's the kind of person who deserves to be with God in heaven. If I can just elevate my church attendance record and my my giving to a certain level, that's when God will really be happy with me. If I am signing up to serve cookies and coffee during Bible study and mowing the church lawn, and teaching Sunday school, that's when I'll be worth something, or maybe worth a little bit more at least, to God. Right? That's the kind of person that he will bless, the kind of person who maybe is, is even a little bit deserving of his blessing. And yet, when we look at the record of our deeds, and not just our deeds of the past, but also of the present, we come face to face with a a stark reality about who we are. We are dead. Yes, maybe you don't use as many four-letter words as you once did until that Packer game comes on, especially this year. Then watch out. And maybe you do not 
express your sexuality in as overt as overtly ungodly ways as you did when you were younger. But you still look with wandering, lustful eyes at that attractive coworker on an almost daily basis. And yeah, maybe maybe you have been able to break free from, from the bottle or, or from whatever it might be. But you still look pridefully and smugly down on everybody else around you who hasn't done what you've done. Maybe you don't rage against your spouse and your kids quite the way that you used to, but you know that if they could just spend an hour in your head, they'd walk away more terrified of you than ever before. Right? That record of our deeds, both past and present, reveals who we really are by nature. And that's what, what Paul wrote about to the Ephesians here when he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Right? By nature, we are dead. And dead means dead. And that which is dead has no power to beget life. Thus, there is also no spark of life toward God and his ways in those who are spiritually dead. Would we look for light to shine forth from a broken bulb? Do we, do we look for breath from the body that's lying in the coffin? No, there's only more darkness and more death to be found there. So then, what's the answer? What's the answer for, for life, for salvation? It is certainly unequivocally found in, in nothing that I do, in nothing that I bring to the table, and in nothing that I might hope to do and hope to become someday if I apply myself really, really seriously toward it. As backward as this might sound, the answer is found in death. Only death makes us alive again. From beginning to end, life for you and me is found in death, the death of one, of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 13, Paul told us, when you were dead in your sins and in the, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, right? Jesus didn't proclaim salvation by being kind and charitable and a patient parent and a faithful spouse. No, his solution was death, his own death. Not by reforming us, but by dying for us has Jesus forgiven us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, not by showing us how we can make God happy with our lives, not by even setting himself up as the example who we must follow in order to, to work our way toward heaven. No, he triumphed over them by the cross. On that cross, he left no sin unpunished. He left no debt unpaid. He left no wrath unsuffered. On that cross, each and every last one of your iniquities, each and every last one of my transgressions, he has canceled at the cost of his 
own blood. Finally, we have a currency that is precious enough to cover that immense cost, not in something that our little selves might do, not in these puny little things that we might think we can bring in our hands to God. No, that cost, that, that, that precious price is found only in the infinite blood of our infinite God himself. Every last power that stood opposed to us, even the authority of Satan himself to accuse us before the throne of God, Christ has triumphed over in a very public fashion when on that cross he cried out, it is finished. Christ has the authority to do this. He has the power to do this. And why? It's because in him, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. In other words, because he's God. With all the power of God and all the truth of God and all the grace of God at his disposal, we know that this sacrifice is enough because God says it is enough. And because God himself says that this is how he accomplishes his salvation. And that's the truth that Martin Luther rediscovered as he was studying the scriptures. He learned what a wonderfully beautiful and comforting message there is in that gospel. A message that the church of his time had come to distort and even to destroy. A message not about our works that end in futility, but a message about your full, absolute forgiveness found in the work of Christ on your behalf. And yet, we do still die. Paul writes that you have been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. What does baptism do? It might not seem it when you got that little baby up at the, up at the font, right? We had a couple baptisms yesterday over at, at our Lindale campus. Baptism kills, though. First, baptism kills. It drowns that old self along with its evil deeds and desires. Baptism does not begin to reform that old, hostile-to-God self. No, baptism chokes the life out of him. My old self, enslaved to those evil deeds and desires, is no longer who I am. We read in Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life through that baptism that kills and the faith that, that comes to life. We are raised to life along with Christ. And that is who I now am. Not a reformed creature, but a reborn creature. My wicked self has not been made good. No, my wicked self has been wiped out. And my new self now made alive in its place. 
through that faith, rooted and established by Christ himself, you have been brought to fullness. Understand what this means. It means that in Christ, you are made complete. You are the entire picture of righteousness as far as God and his judgment are concerned. You are wearing Christ's own white robes of holiness right now, heirs of the salvation that he has accomplished, and the adopted but very real children of God's own family. Can the image get any better than this? Can it get any more beautiful than the one that God has already put together and finished for you? Christ has completed us. He has taken that which was broken and fragmented, and he has made us whole again by his death on the cross. And what has been made complete, quite simply, has no need of any further completion. To talk of such a thing is is silly and frankly kind of childish. When you've just finished a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle, what is there left for you to do? If you try adding, cramming more pieces into that, all you wind up with is a picture, a puzzle that's broken all over again. Now, I want you to understand here, we aren't saying that good works are not important. They are. We aren't saying that good deeds have no place in the life of a Christian. They absolutely do but they must be put in their proper place. Because if I am trying to add to the sufficiency of Christ, or if I am relying on my good works in any way to like complete some missing part of the salvation equation that was only begun by Jesus, I have not enhanced the gospel in any way at all. No, quite the opposite. I have shattered it. Brothers and sisters, that's why we are warned again and again to be on our guard, to beware those messages, all of those messages, whether they come from the world out there, whether they would come from a church just like this one, whether they come from right here in your very own heart, to beware those messages which seek to save you by reforming you. These are those hollow and deceptive philosophies of this world, which Paul wrote about in verse 8. They may seem very innocent and uplifting. They may make you feel really good for a while. They may even come to you disguised in the words of Scripture, ripped out of their context. But in the end, they are trying to take you captive, like slavers who rip people from their homes to sell at market. They do not depend upon Christ alone for salvation, and so they cannot fill up what is already full. They cannot make alive what already lives. They can only bring emptiness and death. God's church has never been built upon such things. No, God's church is built upon Christ crucified alone. Now as we continue to live, rooted and built up in Christ and and strengthened in that faith of him, we remember today, we remember always that he is our fullness. Neither popes 
nor pastors, nor philosophers, nor any other teachers by their own words or ideas can complete or improve what has already been finished. Your salvation is done. Luther knew it. We know it. Jesus has made you who were once dead alive again by his death and resurrection. May we now overflow in thankfulness for this one who triumphed over all things by his cross and who has made us full, made us complete as his brothers and sisters and as heirs of eternal life. Amen.